Folks, we are back for Sopranos Podcast Season 5, Episode 7, 3 to 5, 7 to 9. My life is only debt. That's a quote from Junior Soprano in this episode of The Sopranos Season 5, Episode 7, entitled In Camelot. It's written by Terrence Winter and directed by Steve Buscemi. So season five is in an interesting spot right now, guys. We came out at guns a blazing, really heavy and awesome top five, I would say. Then they slowed things a bit down in a good way with sentimental education. And here we are now within Camelot, another episode that ranks pretty low on Sopranos rankings. And I think we might have a little bit of a disagreement, though not entirely. I think there's elements of this episode that worked really well, elements that perhaps not as much for some of us. But I, I think uh, Jordan was not the biggest fan of this episode. Am I correct? I, yeah, I wasn't. It's not that I think it's um, like a bad episode of television or even a bad episode of The Sopranos. It's just that like of the three plots that are in this episode, like only one really works for me. But we'll we'll get into that. OK, well, I'm excited to get into it with you guys. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And in Camelot, yeah, so this is uh, an interesting setup here is that we are in an ABC plot structure. Uh, the three basic plots that we're going to be covering in this episode are Chris and JT dealing with the gambling debt and that situation, meeting this character, JT Dolan. We are going to see Junior deteriorating in a really sad way with the funeral, using the funerals to get out of the house. And the primary or a plot, which would be Tony digging into his past a little bit with this Fran Felstein character. My, my initial thoughts on this episode are that I like it. Uh, it's, is it my favorite? Is it one that I would put on casually as a night? I'm like, Oh, I'm going to pop on a random Sopranos episode tonight and watch it. Probably not, but that's not to say I didn't enjoy it. I think it's just because it's uncomfortable in a lot of ways. This is a, an episode that makes you feel things that are a little uncomfortable, even by the series standard, which has you seeing Livia in an antagonistic role to cast her in a sympathetic light by the end of the episode is, is, an, is an uncomfortable turn. It's certainly uncomfortable for Tony. It's uncomfortable for the viewer. And then of course, Fran herself has, they do that really awkward long shot on her with the uh, happy birthday, Mr. President. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she rubs Hesh the wrong way. I think she rubs many of the viewers the wrong way, but uh, we'll get into it. What are your initial thoughts on In Camelot? Well, I'll go first since I seem to have the more, I guess, like typical opinion on this episode, because I did notice it's a lower ranked episode and I, I certainly fell right into that trap. Um, I don't. I don't love the episode, but I still recognize it as good television. Like, I still think the writing is good. I think the acting is terrific. It's still got all the stuff that makes good TV. It's just that I found myself just as a viewer, I was like very, very into Junior's story and how, you know, at first it's kind of fun and funny that he is using all these wakes and funerals to basically have a get out of jail free card in terms of his house arrest. And then when he comes to that great realization that, you know, hey, uh, uh, I can't take it anymore. Uh, th that's those are beautiful moments. Those are like some series greats. But the other two plots, uh, the JT Dolan thing is, you know, good and fun in a way, but also sad. And but it also kind of feels like just a retread of the Davies Catino stuff from Bust Out and mm. those episodes. And then 
Yeah, you said it, Chris. The Fran Felstein stuff just feels, I'll use this new generation's word, the Gen Zers, it feels very cringe, very cringy, um, and kind of queasy. And I didn't mind the early scenes of it, but then it kind of just keeps going. Uh, No, I'll say this. It's valuable for what we learn about Tony's past, and it gives him a new way of thinking about things, about his father, about his mother, but... As a viewer, I was kind of just at odds with the presentation. Uh, I do know Paul really likes this episode, so I'd be I'd be interested in hearing his thoughts. Uh, good points. Um, I don't know if you guys want me to speak to what I like about the episode or what I think of its ranking. Um, I'll start. I'll go in reverse order in terms of what people write online and what they think the bottom ten Sopranos episodes are. I could not give less of a shit. Uh, <laughs> people who make listicles and that kind of stuff about like what the bottom 10 Sopranos episodes are in their mother's fucking basement have never made anything within the ballpark <laughs> of as good as those bottom, those supposed bottom 10 don't give a fuck. Now, when it comes to this episode itself, um, I don't know that I like it in terms of, oh, this is like a uh, top 10 episode for me. Actually, the next episode we're going to cover is kind of a sleeper hit for me in terms yeah. of its overall excellence. This episode, on the other hand, is sentimental for me for some reasons. There's moments that I really like. I do think this episode is Vintage Sopranos because it's dealing with a lot of stuff that are that's really heavy and sad with uh, a funny bone. To me, the the key example is Tony going through something real when he sees the episode of I'm sorry, the the episode, the image of the dog, but I dare anybody to watch that scene and not laugh. I think also, I don't know if maybe there's something a little personal in this. We're all from the Northeast. I'm from Massachusetts, where President Kennedy was from. And that Camelot grandeur, I think for me growing up was kind of a big thing. And so also to see that among many other myths get deconstructed in this episode, I think is fun, but also maybe in a way that I can get back to a little bit. As you guys said, it's a little comfortable. All of these three storylines are a little bit cringe, I guess. They are, yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess that would be the way that I feel about it overall. It is a slowdown, which is a little different. This season, a little different than other seasons started up. It came out hot. And then we moved away from the New York stuff in episode five, but that was still pretty hot because everything in New Jersey was heating up the irregular around the margins episode. And now two episodes in a row, it slowed down a bit. I don't know if that's part of it with viewers. Maybe they wanted it to heat up a bit more, um, which is, which is totally fair. I guess I like it for what it is. And I still like that the Sopranos is willing to do all kinds of different episodes. So it doesn't need to be, uh, a distinctive one overall, I guess, for me to dig it. Um, sure. Well, and and, and to, to your point, Paul, I, I see what both you guys are saying about this. And I think the weakest of the three stories, even though I enjoy elements of it, is definitely Chris and JT. For the reason you said, Jordan, there's nothing really new we learn about about the world of the mob and the, the Sopranos that we didn't learn in the Davies Scatino story. It, it's more of a way to introduce this JT Dolan character and see Chris in, in a more dominant role when it comes to collecting his debt. But 
Look, overall, I think I, I very much agree with what you said, Paul, in that it is vintage Sopranos. What is this great Sopranos episode, if not one that deconstructs the glamorization of the past in some way? So, uh, and it even deconstructs its own past. The, the, the show deconstructs its own past because we've seen Livia presented one way and then they, they flip that on its head in the back, in the back nine. Uh, but it's interesting. The flashbacks in Junior's storyline are my favorite part of this and uh, getting to see more Phil Leotardo. I'm a big fan of Frank Vincent. So yeah, more he, Phil Le- he's he's great. Yeah. So more Phil Leotardo on my screen is uh, is absolutely fine. And look, folks, here's the other thing. Every episode can't be a ramp up. Every episode can't be irregular around the margins. It's a show just wouldn't function. One of the things I like about The Sopranos, as opposed to other shows and why I sort of edge it out over some of the other top talked about shows like The Wire, for example. Lily and I talk about this. I think she actually came up with this idea that The Wire, a show like The Wire, is is a photograph of life, whereas The Sopranos is a painting. And every once in a while, you get a weird deviation, and they'll just kind of try something for an hour that's a little unusual, a little unexpected, and they'll run with it, even if it's weird or makes the audience uncomfortable. So... I'm excited. Let's get into it from the top. We start with Tony reconciling, quote unquote, with Janice as they come into Livia's house. They're talking about uh, the blowing roadies line that he's dropped. It got The argument got very, very personal. <laughs> but it seems that some degree of superficial mending has happened here, enough that they can be in the same room together. And the kids are in the other room watching Beethoven. Janice makes an absolutely preposterous comment about the kids being, quote, free to do what they want. <laughs> and then the first words out of her mouth in a warning sort of tone when she comes into the room are, what are you watching? <laughs> and not to mention the shit she's pulled with the chocolate milk uh, with Bobby a few episodes ago. I haven't yeah, we, we know that. she's a total nightmare stepmother. Yeah. 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 I let them do what they want. Yeah. The movie on the screen prompts a discussion about the Bacalieri kids getting a dog, which <laughs> gives us this first thread that's going to be woven through the episode about Tippy the dog, another myth of the past that's going to be very rapidly deconstructed for Tony here. You know, Janice makes the comment actually quite astute, and you're so cynical about everything else. How funny is it that Tony, up into, up into his 40s, he's this is a grown man with kids. He's divorced. One of his kids is his last, his youngest is going to be graduating high school soon. Believed that his dog went up to the, a farm upstate, that Johnny took the dog. Yeah. Well, you know what, though? that That is believable in the world of this show because we know he has this... Um, I mean, look, Janice points it out. We've discussed it at length on multiple episodes. He has this innocent place inside of himself that he can retreat to. That is like where all the animal stuff is. So whereas he can smell a rat in his own operation, like reading like, you know, human behavior uh, to, you know, a keen as a keen predator would. Uh, yeah, when if it is anything to do with an animal, like, yeah, of course, of course it lived on a farm, of course, because it, it appeals to the other part of himself that isn't cunning. It's just sweet. Yeah. Good point. Um, it's funny to me that Janice is also wrong. Right. Tippy, Tippy was not Tippy was not gassed. She right. was given to a girlfriend that Janice didn't know anything about. Um, so she's right. Uh, this is another great Sopranos thing. She's her criticism of Tony is dead on. Like, what is it? Like, you're so cynical about everything else. But she's, like, speaking from her area of expertise. She doesn't know it. Yeah. Yep. 
Dog shit up to the rafters. Great line. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Each episode this season has at least one really good line about shit. Bobby Jr. says, I'll clean up the poo and pee. And Janice says, um, what did she say? Start with your underpants. Right. So 20 years from now, when they find like 20 prostitutes stuffed into Bobby Jr.'s crawl space, Bobby (laughs) Sr. is going to be there like fucking Lionel Dahmer. Like, I don't know why he hates women. (laughs) Um, So, but what we have here is another funny thing. I think it's Terry Winter in his uh, fun and playful, clever way laying in for us that forgiving the mother figure is not going to be easy in this episode. No. Right? Nope. And it's all, and of course, this myth is presented in, in a way now that Tony is blaming Livia for the dog. And, you know, Livia made Johnny Boy give the dog away. So uh, immediately it's like, oh, all, all of us can say, yeah, I can see that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Cut to our first funeral Uncle Zio and Aunt Conchetta. Uh, I guess uh, Aunt Conchetta died. And uh, they do a nice job here. We've never met this Uncle Zio and Equichetta character, but nice touch to put him in an eye patch. That way he's memorable because he comes back later in the episode. It's a, just one of those clever little things they do to make you remember who this person is. Yeah, that's, a, that's a really good move if you're only going to show a character for a brief moment. Yeah. And uh, Junior is all smiles and sunshine. He's enjoying the day. He's got his fancy pinstripe suit on. <laughs> Six hours they let me out for these funerals. I got to spend it being maudlin. Uh, <laughs> Don't you want to pay your respects by crying to a chunk of marble? I'll pay my respects from the after party. <laughs> after party? <laughs> Gandolfini's delivery yeah, of that. such a good delivery. <laughs> and Junior just walks off. But this is, again, to quote Paul here, this is classic vintage. This is vintage Sopranos, just pitch black humor. Junior just living it up at these funerals. And for now, this is almost presented as some kind of comic story. This story is very funny until it all of a sudden really isn't. Uh, But we'll get there. Bobby makes a comment that he's on some new medication. It's really helped with his mood and memory. And other than the fact that this is very bizarre behavior, uh, enjoying these funerals so much, Junior does seem more cogent than when we last left him. Moment to moment. There's a certain connectivity there that was not there during where's johnny yeah tony walks up to his parents grave and sees fran felstein uh this is do i know you you're not annoying me i like the uh there are several instances in this episode where she is hard of hearing there's some comedy there but it's also off-putting it's not the kind of thing that's like you see on tv very much is is this kind of realistic oh she can't really hear what the hell i'm saying and yeah but there's there's also a little bit of like a commentary like she hears what she wants yes you know there's there's the interpretation of what is said there's there's that layer too Mm. that's a really good point I, i hadn't thought of that of hearing what you want and putting yourself in that isolation i guess related she does admit that she's vain and that vanity and that there's something about all this that I again seems to come uh, it interweaves with the Camelot image, I think, of glamour, even down to her working at Bamberger's back in the day, which, as I understand it, is a real place from Jersey that had really expensive, nice stuff. Mm. Um, and I think would have added to that glamorous outlook. Yeah, she's they, they talk a little bit. We find out who she is. This is a Gumar of Johnny's. 
back uh, toward, cl- toward closer to the end of his life. They're talking about Livia. At least she didn't suffer. Uh, she made all of us suffer instead. Good line. Believe me, I heard the stories. The hearing aids come up. I'm too vain. All of this stuff. So we're getting a sense of, of who we think this woman is. And I want to mention this because it's going to come back later on. We can have an interesting discussion here about how much she was working, Tony, perhaps from the beginning or not, how, how deliberate or whatever all of this was. But she says, uh, he always says, if I needed anything, I could call his son. And Tony responds with, what do you need? And she says, not a thing, which is not something Tony's used to hearing. But as we right. come to find out, the timing of this chance meeting is a little unusual. Well, yeah. It, well, even from the jump, it's a little unusual that she's there that day. Uh, mm-hmm. But the episode doesn't really make a, anything of that. That's just something that might occur to a viewer later. Yeah. Tony mentions running into her. And uh, I like the scene with Junior. He's enjoying the food. And he tells this <laughs> hilarious story about being in love with her and yet he suffered in silence. Then <laughs> one day Johnny boy shows up with his uh, fancy suit there, two inch lapel. And that was that to bring this life we lead on a woman. And then uh, junior goes on singing Volare. He's uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, junior. Volare. Great song, but I would actually like to hear junior sing it, but uh, it's, it's out of place. It's presented as uh, inappropriate mood for the setting. Cut to J.T. Dolan. This is our C-plot of the episode. And uh, I like this character. At least I like this actor playing him, what I know of him. I I think this is a funny way for the writers to poke fun at TV writers. There's several. This is actor Tim Daly. Is that his name? Yeah, Tim Daly. From uh, Wings, I think, is what he's probably best known from, right? Yes. Yep, yep. He's a writer and an addict. The heroine, all that, the, that shit practically comes with the Writer's Guild card. Definitely some <laughs> writers laughing at that. For sure. And we just find out in this briefly in this touchdown scene that he not only has the same addiction that Chris had, but he's actually friends with Chris. And Chris naturally would gravitate toward this guy being with his extracurricular interests being what they are, right? So right. that makes sense. We're going to come back to this shortly. Um, just to quickly touch down on these, these are a couple quick scenes where we're laying out these stories. These transitions are great. Where in the one junior does a little bit of singing and it transitions to the applause at the beginning yeah. of the guy's um talk at the meeting. The next transition is him in the middle of his talk saying, I want to talk about taking a moral inventory. Cut to a wide shot of Tony in therapy. Mm. It's great. I wanted to kiss Terry Winter and Steve Buscemi, what they were putting together. Yeah, I just wanted to mention, I, and this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, I do think it is fun, as much as I don't necessarily like this plot, that when they first introduced the character, JT, you assume like, oh, is this going to hook Chris back into the Hollywood stuff? But it actually doesn't. It actually seems to push him farther out from it, which I thought was an interesting subversion where it's more like, oh, this is going to be much more about how Chris is now using the rehab steps to be more manipulative, not to get himself back into, you know, Hollywood or something like that. Yeah. He's bringing Hollywood into his world. Oh, this right. Time it's, it's the other way. It's, it's like a reverse construction of D girl. Yeah. Tony is telling Melfi about Fran 
all of the things that his father was. This is a similar. This is a familiar song now at this point from Tony blaming Livia for uh, the way she treated Johnny, and we all know, at least from Tony's perspective, that Livia was no saint back then. Back then, and probably did drive Johnny nuts. Uh, but do you think that justifies his infidelity? Melfi's prodding and poking a little bit. Tony says something interesting here as far as what we want to hear, what we, the stories we tell ourselves, the myths of the past. Uh, I, I think that the writers had to know this, that Tony's either lying or he is, doesn't, is just unaware. But he said, Livia didn't visit Johnny Boy's grave. And viewers of the show will know that she actually does. In the show, there's a scene in season one when Livia and Junior are visiting Johnny and AJ's playing with some cemetery dogs in the back. I, I forget exactly which episode that is, but I remember the scene very well. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So that's a lie or something that Tony just tells himself. Lord knows where he came up with that, but just interesting. Are you attracted to her? <laughs> For God's sake, she's old enough to be my mother. Oh, geez. And then Melfi gives the look. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then, quote, she's old enough to be my mother. Uh, no, and then, quote, oh, Jesus Christ, it's just an expression. Don't cream yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen her at their hairnet and that house dress. This whole conversation will be over in two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> We're at what I have to assume is an IHOP, given the, uh, the glass next to their table there. Uh, I, you know, listen, I, I don't know, maybe this, I'm opening up a can of worms that we, I don't need to right here with this comic, because I'm sure we're going to get some feedback on it from our very wonderful fans. But uh, I, I don't know why one would visit an IHOP in New Jersey with so many awesome diners every 10 feet. Uh, <laughs> I like IHOP. I, 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 I enjoy IHOP, but Jersey's like the diner state. It's just, I don't know. Well, uh, in defense of IHOP, IHOP has pretty good coffee, which is one of the few things you can still have when you're, you know, doing the whole AA program. So maybe That's that true. was it. I don't know. That's true. Just and a good, cheap. good, cheap, endless cup of coffee, you know. And it is cheap. It is it is very affordable. That's true. Not that either of these guys need that yet. Well, JT will right. shortly. <laughs> uh, he's aiming to get a, a staff job on Law & Order, get that Dick Wolf money. Chris is... Uh, <laughs> Chris is really working the program, but he had some wine. JT chastises him. This is a, uh, th there's a camaraderie here, and JT is making an attempt, at least on the surface, to hold Chris accountable. Chris is explaining, as my fiance was in an accident, JT expresses, no, I don't want to say displeasure, but makes it, makes it clear that Chris can, can call and, check in before he, he does something like that the next time. But JT himself is very fidgety. He's got to, quote, meet a friend. So what Chris is talking about, I guess, is uh, what happened back in episode five. So I had some wine is a distortion of the truth. He, like, raided the freezer, drained the vodka, and went on, like, a fucking insane rampage um, <laughs> and almost got himself killed. This is a distinction, by the way, from the Davy Scatino storyline because it brings up Chris's weaknesses and it brings up Chris's failures and how in his denialism and in the support system that he has, those failures can be swept under the rug, set aside. They don't fit in our image of Camelot. JT's failures end up exploited and blowing up in his face. Mm, yeah. Um, 
that's a that's a key difference i think and yes what we're seeing here is a sense of camaraderie but we're also seeing the beginning of something that also isn't necessarily pleasant honestly i don't love watching this storyline not because again actually not because i think it's bad or poorly written or poorly executed or anything like that but chris you work in the program yeah he's working it to his advantage that's it he doesn't care about this guy really it doesn't seem or he can he is so disassociated from consequences of what he does that he can do this he can do x he can fuck up come back exploit this guy and go home and sleep like a rock yeah there's none of what tony went through in happy wanderer there's none of the difficulty there's none of the moral quandary for all the good the moral quandary does anybody chris is fine i'm apoplectic chris is fine Mm -hmm. yeah true great point this uh old man magnifying glass over the obituaries just pouring over this is this is as grim as it gets but again still in the still in the territory of humor calls up melvoin his niece's godfather met him at a barbecue once <laughs> so melvoin essentially says all right we'll give it a shot let's let's see what you know let's see how that goes but uh, met him at a barbecue once. That's a great indicator of how deep Junior's looking. And we're going to get more of this to come. Cut to Fran Felstein's house. Tony's checking out pictures as she's making dinner and sees a picture of her son, Bruce, with a dog. Freckles, he was a gift from your dad. Oh, no. Oh, Jesus. This is my fucking dog. His name was <laughs> Tippy. He's <laughs> so upset. He's devastated. Devastated. <laughs> oh when (laughs) Uh, lived with them for 10 years until Bruce went to Tel Aviv very funny his dad's she has his dad's slippers so this is all ready going in a a strange direction Tony's all all weird and queasy yeah like your dad like I don't know it's it's there's something it's your dad's slippers. It's I feel that's like not an artifact you you would I feel like you would save. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's all a bit much. Well, this whole episode is like dancing around with a corpse. The whole episode is like this one way or another. It's just the stuff that yeah, the, his stuff shouldn't be out. The slippers shouldn't be out. He, he shouldn't know the the you know what ha- really happened to the dog he thought is dead. Uh, you know, it's all this is all part of that. This, you know, it all feels very wrong. Yes. And then the picture of Hesh. Look at Hesh. He was a whore master and cheap. <laughs> George Gershwin. <laughs> and line. then, yeah, right. And then the midget auto racing comes up. Uh, it was, apparently, we come to find out that he- she feels like Hesh dipped her out of a retirement money. Apparently, the story goes that Johnny, Phil Leotardo, and Hesh were in out uh, were in on this midget auto racing track, and apparently Johnny promised his share to her when before he died, and Hesh didn't pay her out. So Tony offers her five hundred bucks, and she plays it off like, "Oh, I shouldn't have even brought it up." Tony indicates he's going to look into this further, but. He says, Junior says, hello. We get a 
bit of a punchline on this. He was practically a, a stalker. They go on this drive. She tells him Junior used to skulk outside her building. Weird phone calls. Very funny imagery. Uh, and and we totally believe it, right? Uh, I mean, that's, uh, uh, this this is true. <laughs> you can just see like a jacket pulled up with the thick glasses, oh, yeah. like yeah. just lurking in an alley across the street from her. I can see it. Yeah. I can fucking see it. Absolutely. What the complication on this show of misremembering the past? It's a big theme. Tony said at Vesuvio at the end of season one, remember the times that were good. How is that complicated by, I don't know, the Camelot looking back and trying to justify yourself, remembering yourself in a good light? Uh, It's fascinating and weird. And in this case, pretty funny. I also just want to note, I hadn't thought of this until we were recording, actually, but um, we're talking about the myth of Camelot, which is the myth of King Arthur a father figure, a leader, as Kennedy was, as uh, Tony's dad was. Tony's dad's name was also Johnny. And like, actually, John Kennedy, he was the figure who was maybe not supposed to be the leader. He was the younger brother. Joe Kennedy was supposed to be the big politician. He yeah. was killed right. in the Second World War. And so is there? are we dealing with that dynamic between the brothers deliberately again? Um, I, I don't know for sure. I just, I just, I, I honestly just thought of it when we started recording. That's a hell of a take. That's interesting. I like that. The juniors long had an obsession with Kennedy. That's, that's fascinating. The whole Dr. Kennedy thing from season three. That's yeah. That's, I like that. Sure. And Tony too. I mean, Tony with, um, Kennedy's hat and all that. I think that goes back to season one. That That's episode one, man. That's, that's, crazy. that's the pilot. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. They're talking about Livia. She was statuesque is a great word for Livia. And she pulls out this flask. What is it? Well, it's one for the road, honey. And this looks like road to me. I like the way she, <laughs> I like the way she delivers that line, though. I vehemently disapprove of drinking and driving. All right. Reason. All right. Uh, but uh, again, going back to this classiness and quote unquote, and the fancier things that Fran has an affinity for. This is uh, VSOP, the good stuff. Tony takes a hit. They uh, keep driving. Speaking of sobriety, here are Chris and JT working out. And uh, I think, Paul, you may have mentioned this in a previous conversation, but uh, this is good depiction of two guys in recovery helping each other out. They're eating sweets. They're Mm -hmm. lifting weights. The idea being that I've heard this proposed in different therapeutic settings and whatnot, that you want to replace one addiction with something that is healthy, right? You want to place it with something else. Now, one of these characters is replacing his drug addiction with a gambling addiction, but we're going to get there shortly. All of the AA conventions take place in Vegas. <laughs> That's not an accident. No. Really? Uh, yeah, those guys love it. You know, it's part of it. You know, I'm not, I'm not judging anybody, but it is an interesting thing. Yeah, you see them with the sweets, the coffee working out it's it is it's good it's it's good that they have those uh details and it's not a uh, any fest with paul sorvino totally unrealistic (laughs) (laughs) jt has to tell chris he's totally clean and sober chris tells him he thought he was chipping or you know jonesing for drugs and uh nope totally clean and sober and they're talking about sports betting they're going to come back to it shortly we're at the racetrack Talking, uh, Tony and Fran just visiting out in the uh, bleachers there. She asks about his wife, good woman, good mother, marriage hit the rocks, what can you do? 
And then his girlfriend, Valentina, sophisticated art dealer, Latin, you know, from Spain, just to just to clarify. Right, which I I guess he says to stay away from the topic of Cuba, perhaps, which would be like a Kennedy reference, maybe. I don't oh, know. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A yeah. bit of a reach, maybe, but something. Nah, it's probably not an accident, though. That's that's good. That's good. Yeah. But then they're uh, going on this little walk. She has this linen handkerchief. You know, Tony says you have a lot of, I don't know, you have a lot of class. And uh, Fran replies, like, your girlfriend. It, it, it's just... Uh, it's just kind of funny that these two women are basically mistresses in this story and they're being depicted as having all of this, this class, you know what I mean? The, the, the handkerchief and the sophisticated art dealer from Spain, right. you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is it something again, reflecting a myth that, that needs deconstructing um, that Kennedy had these girlfriends, but they were typically glamorous Marilyn Monroe yeah. that kind of vibe as, right. as his wife indeed was also quite glamorous but um you know and that might be something of why these misogynistic figures idolize him Tony visits Hesh and confronts him about this money kept Johnny's end who do you think's been taking care of the place all these years the taxes and the bullshit and then Hesh <laughs> so they they there's an exchange about them being friends. Well, if I'm such a good friend, how come you never come see me anymore? What? I've been busy. They're <laughs> <laughs> too busy to call me at 2 a.m. to come hear about your problems. One time that happened. My therapist was on vacation. <laughs> so Hesh is holding on to that. That's funny. These two, uh, you know, it's funny that it, it has been a while since we've had a good Hesh episode, I feel like. So I, I kind of, I'm on Team Hesh on that argument. I miss Hesh. I like Hesh. Oh, I, I love Hesh. Every time I we get too. a Hesh scene, I get like a little thrill. I think he's a great character. Yes, he is. I think uh, you mentioned back when we had the episode on Pax Soprana in season one that you referred to. I think Jordan referred to Hesh as like if uh, these characters are the Knights of the Round Table, that Hesh is the, the wizard of the family. Yeah, I, I think part of his inclusion here is to kind of get that little bit of the Merlin, right? He's the right. he's the old king's wizard. He's still yes. around. He remembers all the stuff from back in the day. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's definitely, there's, there's part of that. Yep. We don't end up defining like what the deal is, I guess, with Fran Felstein, but to Jordan's point, it, Hesh might <laughs> have the best overall characterization of her. Like, I don't know. The end of the day with this episode she just kind of rubs me the wrong way yeah that might be the best yeah. i can put it yeah yeah that's funny and tony they have this hilarious exchange i love that uh they're consistent with this but uh he says maybe that's because she was rubbing him and not you and Hesh says how long have you known me bub a little pale for my tastes <laughs> right. pointing, says, to, pointing to his love of of course black women yep yep Cuts to Melvoin. I like that. I just want to give a little shout out to this actor who plays Melvoin. I really like Attorney Melvoin. This is a fun, I, I guess, quote unquote, side character here. Uh, I like the job he does. I like the way he portrays this lawyer and he's arguing on the phone. All right. So it's not a blood relative. Are we quibbling? The man wants to pay his respects. <laughs> <laughs> and he's threatens to get the judge involved and makes a big deal. Four hours, it's not a Hawaiian vacation. <laughs> and he gets 
the funeral and <laughs> Junior just looks at him agog and says, you're worth every fucking cent. Cut to the next scene in the Bing. JT shows up. Chris is uh, sitting there. JT, I guess, did pretty well on a bet. He wants to gamble his winnings some more. And that, to me, is uh, a red flag. I Listen, I like to gamble. I've had a great time with you gentlemen in particular in Atlantic City. Uh, so I'm not against a little friendly gambling. But when, oh, you, sure. when you win big on a, on a, on a, on a sports bet, and your idea with that money is not like, ah, oh, let me invest it or let me start a business or let me just put it in my savings. When you're <laughs> when your thing is, ah, you know, I should gamble this money now. That's when you really start to potentially have a problem. Uh, oh, yeah. Big time. <laughs> I think at least putting some of that money away uh, is a good idea. But he wants to then Chris makes the offer of the executive game. And, and JT is talking about that excitement. And this is when the alarm bells really should start going off. Uh-oh. Chris and also can... for, for Sopranos viewers, the executive game is cursed. Oh, big time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't... This, is, this never goes well for any <laughs> character. <laughs> Unless you're Silvio. He always wins big. Yeah, Silvio and Vito usually do pretty good yeah, at the poker that's games. That's Vito. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, everyone else, even... even um, even the doctor a few episodes ago can't go without having all of his fan friends and family's cars hijacked. Chris confesses he smoked a little weed and JT excoriates him. You have got to call someone before you use. And then you ask me to meet you in a bar. <laughs> yeah, this is not a good place for two alcoholics to meet up. You just don't want to be around it. Avoiding alcohol situations like this is a good idea for alcoholics. Cut to a sit-down in New York. Speaking of meeting in a bar, the ruling that Johnny Sack gives down is 40 grand from Phil. Hesh asked Tony to see if Phil would take up some of the, the burden of this money that's going to go to Fran from the sale of the racetrack. And while it's not nearly what Hesh is going to be paying her, 40 grand is not nothing. No, it's quite a lot. And uh, Tony, this is a consistent character trait with Tony. He does not like being referred to as kid or junior or, you know, any of these. No, certainly uh, not after he just had to deal with Feech in this same bullshit. He's putting that down right quick. Yes. When Phil says, you got some balls, kid, I'll give you that. You'll give me, you'll give me what I tell you to give me. This ain't the seventies and I'm not a kid. <laughs> Relax. It's just an expression. Well, here's another expression. You got five days to give me my money. And I love this little exchange because it's funny especially as a New Jersey resident myself. But it's also very telling of the mindsets here, which may come into play at some point. But when Tony storms out, he says, that was out of line. John says, Philly, he's a boss. And Phil's response is, Jersey? Come on, huh? <laughs> which speaks to the mindset that we've spoken before that a lot of these hardened New York gangsters don't really view Jersey as an equivalent operation. No. I mean, it's it's uh, this is not a great word for it, but I was going to say it's it's nice that Johnny Sack affords Tony the level of respect that he's due. I mean, we we know he is due that respect, of course. But yeah, for these New York guys, it's almost like Jersey's a whole different league from them. Mm. It's like they're playing real baseball and Jersey is like, I don't know, softball or triple A or something like that. Right, right. And we've said it before that this is a general New York, New Jersey thing that they have the Yankees and the Mets. They have two baseball teams. New Jersey has none. They, they, <laughs> they, 
are the football teams that play in the state of New Jersey are both New York teams. They took the Nets out of Jersey and we moved them to Brooklyn. It's like this, this whole mentality of like, ah, Jersey, let's laugh at Jersey. But we've kind of been talking about this also, even in the context of the show that the New York gangsters are tougher, they're meaner, they're nastier. And this speaks more to that. And I think that's going to be important. The more important New York becomes in the storyline. Yeah, for sure. And Tony kind of has to fight for the respect there, yeah. It reminds me a bit, I don't know if this is deliberate, but um, the way that Phil is speaking to him, of the way that Frank Vincent's character in Goodfellas speaks to Joe Pesci's mm. and yeah. tells him to go get his fucking shine box. Um, the way he pays for it is way worse in that, <laughs> but clearly a mistake. And we'll get to the Rock the Casbah scene. Yeah. Tony is going back to Fran, telling her that she's got the money coming. She brings out this JFK handkerchief. Look at the initials. Holy shit. We had a thing, quote unquote. And she tells this story. Uh, I won't go into the beat by beat breakdown of the story. But the gist of it is that she is dragged to this fancy party at the Pierre Hotel. There's celebrities, Jackie Gleason, Frank Sinatra, Peter Lawford. She's wearing a sable, so he drops this line about having to interview her in the interest of national security. He seduces her. They get together. She says, that's what your mother never understood. When you're married to a powerful man, you damn well better make him feel powerful. She says this line about Livia, which even as poorly as Livia has been, has behaved in this show, and as much of the villain as she is, and the the... the shadow that looms I, I i thought there was something a little mean about this line uh for her especially for someone who was a mistress uh to with johnny to say that livia she's seen her on new year's eve she looked like a refugee uh, i just thought that that was a mean-spirited line and again it's every, yeah, yeah. Like, and, and every and tony does not like it yeah correct yeah every scene she says at least one thing that's a little like ooh, that's that's off isn't it isn't that a weird thing to say and uh she Again, more of this glamorization of each other. Tony's dressed nice here. He's come through for her, a knight in shining armor. Got her the, got her the money. And she says, your father has been proud. He raised a real gentleman. This is a murdering sociopathic thug. He's no gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but here we are. We're in Camelot. JT at the executive game getting absolutely massacred by Vito. Uh, so this is already not going well. Getting that question that writers, I'm sure, are asked all the time by people who have no clue what goes on in the entertainment business. Uh, do you, do you, was one person write one guy's lines and the other write the other? And JT says, you, you write it all yourself. <laughs> I, I feel like Terrence Winter has gotten that question on a few occasions. Yes, there's a lot of authentic things to the experience of being a, a Hollywood writer or TV writer on this episode, for sure. Cut to this short, puzzling, but funny scene of Tony having sex with Valentina. It's the first time we've seen Valentina in a little while. And uh, this picture of the dog is just staring at Tony and he looks up and it catches him. They even added a little dog sound effect in there briefly. Uh, again, very odd, very off-putting. It's not clear exactly what the fuck this is or why, but it, it just adds to the the quiz factor in this episode. That's it. 
I think it is just must be a funny thing. I was really trying to deconstruct this and I was like, no, nope, just supposed to be funny. Just forget it. Yeah. And it, it does hit on two levels, though, because the, you have the dog on one thing and then she was just telling the story about the sable. I think the person in the picture also has a fur coat on. That's a, oh, okay. that's a, a detail worth noting. Yeah, I think part of it is that even I was about to say obliquely, but I guess it's more direct. I think he's fucking Valentina and thinking of Fran in one way or another. Mm. Tony doesn't want to admit in this story that some of these things trouble him. Right. Yeah. It's or it's hard for him to get there. Like he I think he finally gets there near the end when he's saying to Melfi like his fucking slippers. But she, it's it's I'm not judging him. I think it, it I, I get it. It's hard for him to deal with a lot of this stuff it is queasy it's uncomfortable it's very difficult i think for him to reflect on how it makes him maybe see some different things about his mother and and feel for her in a different way yep junior is desperately staring out a window for anything interesting when bobby pulls up and tells this horrible story about this kid sal from the dry cleaner Son died in a jacuzzi, drowned in a jacuzzi, seven years old. And Junior immediately hops on that. And this is, look, it's always sad when somebody dies, but most of the people in the episode so far have been either sick or elderly, people you kind of expect maybe to die at a certain point. Uh, But this is a little bit different. This is a child who died in very tragic circumstances. And Junior's right on the phone with Melvoin. Corrado, it has to be a relative. Corrado, my balls. I got to get out of this house. I'm going fucking stir crazy. <laughs> uh, Corrado, my balls. Great. Uh, JT is out all night and has the uh, audacity to go all in on a pair of tens. Yeah, that's how you know this guy's just <laughs> bottoming the fuck out. <laughs> oh. Man. Owes the house as Chris comes in. We find out. Uh, Chris talks to Carlo and finds out that uh, owes the house fifty-seven thousand dollars. That is a My insane God. amount of money. Am I misremembering, or is that also kind of in the ballpark of what Davy owed? Uh, maybe, maybe a little less, but yeah, I forget. But that that sounds reasonable. Mm. Chris confronts him. Eh, he blows it off. Uh, if I if I land this Dick Wolf job, that's like a month's salary. Oh, so you know that that makes it that, that makes it okay. Chris uh, informs him that he's going to be paying Vig two points every week till I'm paid in fucking full. It's going to be sixty grand, and Chris fights back immediately. Like you said, Paul, there's no give here. There's no guilt. He says, "This is your problem. I will not fucking enable you." Using, and and then this is where it gets really dark, using AA rhetoric to extort a man from gambling and and loan shark him. Uh, Just just that is as as low as it it gets, frankly. Yeah. Well, hey, listen, hasn't hasn't Tony used uh, tools of things that he's been given in therapy to manipulate others around him uh you know hasn't uh you know any exposure any of these men have to something that is meant to bring them to a higher moral good they they somehow uh through their machinations turn it around to be something that is more evil yes exactly 
Uh, friend of ours, friend of the show, Mike Drummy, has referred to it as uh, discovering a whole new language with which not to communicate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like Very that good. phrasing. Phil is uh, grabbing a nice little uh, little ice cream here in Brooklyn. I love this scene. Uh, this is uh, Tony pulls up. <laughs> First of all, Tony had to have been scoping him out and mm-hmm. following him a little bit. Waits till he's in sort of a vulnerable position, getting a little Italian ice. And Phil ignores him right until Tony's right up on him. Hey, Tony, I got to go meet John. Motherfucker, Tony chases him. And this is a very dangerous uh, chase through the streets of Brooklyn. Though I saw shit like this when I lived in Brooklyn regularly. <laughs> this is this is actually pretty normal driving for Brooklyn. So <laughs> not, not, not really anything unusual here, actually. Um, <laughs> But eventually, I, it, it, another really smart moment, too, in this sequence, uh, props to uh, Buscemi and everyone for putting this together. First of all, great song choice, number one. Rock the Casbah just underscored this very well. Yes, very fun. And that moment when Phil is like, I think it's time to throw the ice cream out the window <laughs> and get both <laughs> hands on the wheel is is really fantastic shit. And then Tony runs him off the road. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Boom. Smashes into this truck. Tony's fake innocent act when he walks up on Phil. Mister, you okay in there? Oh, it's so so good, <laughs> so satisfying. <laughs> and then gets in there and becomes the man we've we've love we we love to hate. Grabs him by the hair, rips his neck. Oh, Tony, my neck, my neck. Phil is in pain. Uh, you run from me, you cocksucker. You got twenty four hours. That's it. Leaves it like that. And then it was bad enough. He lies to all the onlookers. Police cops have been called. They're on their way. (laughs) (laughs) So no one's coming for Phil. It's great. (laughs) And again, this this scene, this next scene for me, I, I, I still laughed at it because it's just so fucking dark. But this is when it started to get a little less funny for me and more, Oh, this is going in a very bad direction to someone who has not seen this before or may not know where this is going. I feel like this is when it starts to look, uh, this is like, Oh, this is really not good. Right. So this is now ghastly. Yes. Yeah. He's sitting there. These parents are grieving. The mother's like stroking the picture of the kid has to get dragged off to bed. She's in so much grief. Junior, we should go. Bobby says correctly, what have we just got here? Looks at somebody, chicken's nice and spicy, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Good Lord. He's like Uh, a vulture in that scene, for sure. Yes, yes. Just eating at the the feast of the dead, yes. Oh, I love that imagery of Junior as the vulture, Jordan. That's great. The bald head and everything, yeah. Yeah. The the sort of hooked nose kind of look. Chris comes to collect. You're casting a shadow over the peephole. Chris is too experienced for this. JT is not prepared for the real gangster to show up at his door. Oh, it's I thought you were this girl. Come on in. He's got these TV pitch meetings, and Chris essentially tells him, I got out of that business because people fuck you over. So Chris doesn't have faith that he's going to get this dick wolf job. Chris was not, Chris did not leave that business because people fuck you over. He was not invited into that business. Right. I guess that uh, roof being soft tar with tap shoes idea wasn't a winner in the uh, – in the writer's guild. <laughs> this is more self-justification or misremembering the past. Yeah. Yep. By the way, his line, I went to AC. Jesus Christ, JT. 
Uh, not where he should have been after dropping 57000 in other people's money. But anyway, I'll be back tomorrow. Don't make me a jerk-off. And he leaves. Chris is done being Joe Jerkoff after his experience. Uh, he's not in any kind of position right now where he wants to be made a fool out of. So he makes the threat, and he's going to make good on it. Believe that. By the way, great. Again, like you said, Paul, misremembering the past, but the, the fact that he said that cocksucker John Favreau stole my ideas. <laughs> great, great shit. Tony gave Fran money to pay the rent and get her phone turned on, but she bought these shoes again. You know, I, I get the idea. Look, I've certainly, I always have, I've had these thoughts when you come into a little bit of extra money, it's like, Oh, I could buy a new uh, something with this. But if you have a, you know, your phone is turned off. Well, I treated myself. I get it. But again, it's just something that's like, ah, and you can tell that, you know, maybe bothers Tony a little bit, but he doesn't make any kind of deal of it. But right. Yeah. She spent the money on the new kicks. This kind of maybe gives us an idea of why she's in such dire financial straits in the first place. Yes, you're correct. Yeah, she's clearly not making good decisions with her money. Right. But again, the the theme of debt we keep coming back to in each of these plots. That's sort of the connecting, the invisible thread connecting these these these. Plots. Yes. We'll get so, to, yes. Yeah. Which I I kind of find a little weak, but yes, that is true. Sure. <laughs> Tony is looking very sharp this entire episode, by the way. Uh, and that's part of the image he's portraying here. Chris shows up the next day with little Pauly. Uh, little Pauly is always very funny to me. Uh, I like this when he says, what is this, Pulp Fiction? Am I supposed to be afraid? I don't know. I didn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> he's a big uh, big goof like his, like his uh, Uncle Pauly. They rough... All intents and purposes, the point of this scene is, what are you going to do to me that I haven't already been through? I'm positive we'll think of something. And they beat the bejesus <laughs> out of him. That We have smart people at the helm of this creative team. This is shot in a way that's meant to be somewhat humorous. But, uh, I mean, they fucking break this thing over his head. And then they, they get in some real nasty kicks there. It's not, uh, not a pretty picture. And uh, this is not Chris at his best. Yeah. Can I say something really quick about, I don't know if this detail is put in there deliberately. I think JT at the beginning, what is he playing Tetris or something? Yeah. Um, and behind him, you see a poster uh, for Dr. Strange Love, which is um, one of my favorite movies. And I think they end up using the poster to beat him. They like smash it over his head. Dr. Strange Love uh, came out in somewhere January, February of 1964. The original planned release date for Dr. Strangelove was Friday, November 22nd, 1963. Oh, wow. Oh, shit. But as it turns out, Camelot fell that day, and after Kennedy was shot and killed, uh, I think the movie people decided, all right, not an end of the world movie this weekend. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that's deliberate. I just found it fascinating that that he, JT might just have that because he likes the writing of that movie, but I just wanted to throw that out there. That can't, yeah, to me, that can't be an accident. That's too, yeah, yeah, that's that's just too much in the wheelhouse. Uh, but fucking good, good catch, Paul. Really good. They beat the ever loving fuck out of JT, and we find out that Uncle Zio has finally died of heartbreak. Essentially, this happens sometimes with couples. Uh, I, I've seen this happen actually in real life where an older married couple or people who've been together for a very, very long time into old age 
one dies and then the other actually passes within a month. Uh, I knew a couple in real life and attended their wake who died within 12 hours of each other. Wow. Where yeah. the wife passed away and the husband did not last 12 hours. So yes, yeah. totally a thing. This is a real phenomenon. So uh, that's interesting. Father Phil is giving, I have to say, you know, we'd usually take every opportunity to shit on Father Phil. Uh, this is the nicest thing I've ever seen him do is this eulogy. I think he's doing a, a lovely job here. <laughs> yeah, whatever. He's <laughs> Jordan doesn't want to give him a lick of credit. I but... fucking hate that guy. <laughs> but uh, then it gets then it gets tough. Junior is had enough. The debt has been building. The pain and the anguish and the claustrophobia of the situation in which he currently finds himself becomes too much. Being surrounded by the constant grief. And uh, Dominic Chinesi does a wonderful job with this. It's heartbreaking. Uh, Junior just breaks down and is wailing. All the grief and the being surrounded by the death and the misery has finally caught up to him. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's tough. It's my favorite moment of the episode is that, you know, he he just can't pretend anymore. And with this new medication that he's on that... Um, you know, I think there's initially a reaction from other people like, oh, is, is something wrong with Junior? And as we come to find out in the subsequent scene in the doctor's office, it's not the case. It's that he's even more grounded, more tethered to reality. He's experiencing it more. He can't turn away from it. It would almost be better for him to be in uh, in with like having more dementia, essentially. Right. Like, right. He, you know, uh, he would be. He would be better off if his mind was back in Camelot in some right. ways. Uh, right. This is, isn't that just the dark twist of the of, of that whole storyline, though, is that he's as cogent as ever. You'd have to be insane not to be in the mindset Junior's in, given this situation. Yeah. Yeah, very good. What's the point? It can't take it anymore. They have to take him out of there. This is uh, as close to rock bottom as one can get. You're at a pawn shop trying to sell your Emmy. And <laughs> good bit, though. It's a good bit. Oh, it's a hilarious bit. He wants a guy will give him 15 bucks for an Emmy. Uh, if it were an Oscar, maybe an Academy Award, but TV. <laughs> I remember there was a similar joke on The Simpsons where they're like, a cable ace award. What the hell is this? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, Terrence Winter having fun here. Though to JT, Joe, to the to, to the credit of JT's dignity, whatever that's worth, he does not release relinquish the Emmy for the fifteen bucks. He takes that back. So, hey, <laughs> Chris finds out in the next scene that JT got twelve hundred dollars together for his payment, but he was all fucked up. Clearly, had been resorted back to heroin. He's hit. He's quote hit the vein, nodding out. And Chris oh takes boy. the has the money in his hands like son of a fucking bitch, as he's holding the money <laughs> in his hand. Fran is making filet mignon. Tony gives her the cash, hundred and fifty grand. God, I wish someone could drop that into my hand. That'd be wonderful. She starts telling another story, story of this trip to the shore. It comes up that they were stopping to get cigarettes, and Tony cuts her off again, sort of back similar energy to when he found out about the dog, but this time it's a little bit more pointed. Oh, you kept, my dad got emphysema. You kept smoking. Even my mother managed to quit. 
Uh, Tony's not happy with that. And sh she says, well, he didn't mind. He, you know, eventually Tony lets it go, but it, in a little bit, like, all right, all right, whatever, finish your story. The story wasn't going anywhere exciting. The, Johnny talked the guy into giving them free champagne. The story fell flat. She brings out, uh, to Tony brings out JFK's hat. And then we get the, uh, the very, it feels like it's 10 years long, this scene where she does the happy birthday, Mr. President. It is just it, the most awkward thing I've ever seen. And she's it's giving it. so awkward. And it, between the shots of Tony's face, he just looks like the colors drained out of his face. He looks mortified. <laughs> and she's singing it directly into the camera. This is, uh, Steve Buscemi did a bang up job with this. If the intent was to make your audience squirm in their seats and look at their watch and be like, what the fuck am I looking at here? Uh, good job. But this, this certainly shatters any illusions Tony might have. This is a very unsettling scene. Good, good unsettling, but unsettling, unsettling. Chris is confronting JT again. His apartment is barren. It is stripped clean. It is, there's not a fucking thing. The imprints of the furniture are on the floor. I mean, he's got the cigarette in his hand and the couch under his ass. That is all he has in there. And Chris is, uh, he's expressing that some kid from Yale got the Dick Wolf job. So that's not happening. Shot up five, six times. You're going to use, why didn't you call me? JT rightfully, where do you get the right? Yeah, we're going to come back to that. And then we get possibly my favorite sequence of the episode. That is, doesn't have to do with Junior. Uh, Tony's in Melfi's office now. Jesus Christ, his fucking slippers. I mean, I didn't live with my mistress. And then we get into this flashback. And I really like this flashback sequence. Sopranos does flashbacks very well. Yeah, no, this is very good. And this stuff works for me. I always like when they go back. And I think we've talked about this before. This I love this actor who plays Johnny. I like seeing Tony with the long hair. But he came home. There's a note from Aunt Quinn. His mother was pregnant. Livia was pregnant with an, uh, what was going to be another sibling for Tony and lost the baby. Tony is calling all around town trying to get Johnny. And Johnny is with Fran. And he finds out what's going on. Eventually, he returns the call much later that night. Makes the worst possible decision in this uh, situation. Uh, Fran goes off to make the steak or the, what do they have in pot, pot roast or whatever. And she gets up out of bed and Johnny says, listen, I'm tied up. I'll come get you in the morning, something like that. But basically he's not going to come out and deal with this until the next day. We get the scene in the hospital with Livia. First of all, I just have to say this actress playing Livia fucking crushed this. I thought she did a yeah. great job. She's Very great. believable as young Livia. Just devastated. You're, you're like, you're, you're okay. Your life is so wonderful and great Livia dialogue here. She could have died. Johnny tells this lie about the Yankee game and going to cousin cousin Jimmy's and Tony ends up towing the line for his father, despite the fact that his mother was in serious jeopardy. And in that moment, you can kind of see on Livia's face. She knows that Tony's lying. But at that point, the issue is moot. And uh, they did a good job here. They humanized Livia. This is while no one around Livia had any chance, and Livia certainly, and Melfi brings this up, she's, you know, she had her faults, uh, but she didn't have much of a chance with the people around her either. And I think that that gets lost sometimes in the narrative that we see with Livia. Uh, and this is the first time he's, that, as, that I can remember that the audience is confronting, and Tony is confronting it in this way, but 
Tony just doesn't want to go there. Is there any blame on his part? She asks and eventually just hits Tony with, you need to forgive her and move on. And Tony is not able to process it. He just keeps going back to the story. She made my father give the dog away. It was up to her. She would have had him killed. Any thoughts on this awesome scene with Melfi or anything else in the flashback? Well, I think, you know, it's if you look at the flashback, it's important for Tony to lie uh, to uphold the story that his father is presenting, because if he doesn't go along with the lie, uh, you know, he's putting his family in jeopardy. It's it's like they all kind of uphold the lie of Johnny's world, you know, and and the lie of what he has separately, which I guess we could say is Camelot in this episode. Right. Uh, you know, when we have, um, you know, in the in the present moment, it's just as important for Tony to uphold the lie that his mother is totally inhuman and totally not worthy of sympathy because, again, that is easier to him, right? You know, we've already said several times this episode, this this episode, the best parts of this episode are the moments where we can recognize and talk about, it's about the lies we tell ourselves, it's about the myths we create for ourselves because they create structures for us and there's safety in those structures. It's a lot easier to contain Livia inside of a story about her. Mm. Right. It's a lot easier to uh, contain the unpleasant things about his father if he can lie on his behalf and uphold the lie, you know. Um, and when Melfi tries to challenge that, as per usual, Tony can't go along with that. Yeah. Uh, what Johnny Pano does in this flashback is something that John Kennedy actually did. He was in Europe, I think, with uh, any number of people, including some of his women and what was supposed to be the Kennedy's third child. Um, Jackie Kennedy had a miscarriage. He didn't come back. He knew it was happening. He stayed there. He, I mean, there's a lot of things I love about Kennedy as a president and a historical figure. He was a fucking pig. And that myth needs deconstructing. And so does this one. And he needs to forgive his mother for himself. Right. So he can move on with his life. He's not, he is not nearly ready. Well said, guys. Way to bring that point home. I have nothing else to add. Moving along here, Chris signs over the car, $17,000. Chris is knocking off the principal. Fucking love that car. You'll get it back, or you'll get another one. Just how false and patronizing does this feel for Chris to say, I I have faith in you. There's no chemical solution to a spiritual problem. Coming from Chris. Yeah, what a line. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's some line. And he says it with a fucking straight face and a smile. Unbelievable. The dissonance there. Speaking of chemical solutions to a spiritual problem, Junior's line, the drug stopped working. Again, these transitions are fucking fantastic. As you said earlier, Paul, Junior is making a lot of sense here, unfortunately, and I I really feel for him. He's not wrong. Uh, I'm trapped. What's the goddamn point? My life is only debt. I'm living in a grave. I have no children. Can somebody explain this to me? And we talked about this a little bit earlier. We don't need to belabor the point, but, uh, you know, the sad part about this is Junior is the most cogent he's been in a long time. Yeah. Uh, and he has a sobering assessment of his life up to this point and where he is and um, being around all this death and 
being in his present situation with his mind as good as it's going to be, boy, oh boy, uh, I, I, I feel for him. And this is, this is tough stuff. This is stuff a lot of humans wrestle with these thoughts. Does it matter? What have I done? What have I left behind? And unfortunately, his line, I'm living in a grave, is uh, apropos. Uh, what has Junior done with his life that is sustaining him through old age? Right. Yeah, this is why the show does so well with this character. I mean, once you took Junior away from being a street-level guy uh, with like a day-to-day agenda of things to do, he's, you know, and then you you put him under house arrest, he, he would just be left with whatever he's built for himself, which of course is nothing. We said before many episodes ago, you know, Junior is not a gangster that was meant to get old. And now he's dealing with what many people deal with in old age, which is um, the the dominating sense of dread that can come with old age when you are just left with uh the, the bare bones of life uh, he he has no sense of uh, or sorry no no source of joy no source of hope he has nothing to live for um so it's it's difficult to watch him dealing with this final scene here close us out we're at the bing tony is telling this story about fran and how she was like a princess and that she had this fling with Kennedy and the guys are buying it. Tony B has a bit of a look uh, as if he knows Tony's making statements that may not be based in complete reality. Yeah, but Tony B's the smart one. He knows, he knows. He, what's yeah, up. exactly. Uh, and that's a character whose uh, past is not as uh, ideal as perhaps it wasn't to, as for Tony Soprano's past in his mind anyway. And, uh, but this is, uh, this is dark, not only because the myth can, it's just Tony, this character was close to getting it and didn't, but it's just, he's so far from anywhere he needs to be to begin to heal from his relationship with his mother. He's not even close. As long as the myth of Fran and the story from the old days holds up, so will Tony's anger to his mother and to himself and his feelings of worthlessness around that whole situation. So this is a pretty dark note to end the show on and uh, bleeding out from that really awful, I don't know how else to describe it, awful, uncomfortable kind of techno music playing in the Bing out to this beautiful Jackie Gleason song uh, was uh, certainly an unsettling note to end the show on. Yeah. Final thoughts on this scene and on the uh, episode proper. Anything else you want to say? Yeah, just I, I will touch on a few points that I made already, but just in kind of a wrap up here. Uh, I love the final scene because, again, it brings up this aspect of storytelling and the importance of stories. And I love that there's a doubter there. Mm. I love that Tony B's there. He's actually a really necessary part of that last scene. Yeah. Because there there needs to be a non-believer there. You know, the whole thing with Camelot, uh, I, I mean Arthur's Camelot, is that, you know, the defining feature of Camelot in legend is that it falls. That That's the main thing about it, is that that uh, utopian, beautiful society, uh, peace, prosperity, it, it's not made to last. You know, the the foundations of Camelot start to crumble with the Guinevere's affair with Lancelot. Uh, we go through the discord within the court uh, of the Knights of the Round Table. Ultimately, Arthur dies and, and Camelot falls apart shortly thereafter, uh, besieged from the outside. Um, 
you know, I, I was doing a little bit of reading uh, sort of peripheral to this episode. I had thought that uh, the Kennedys and that whole thing was always referred to as Camelot in their time. But apparently that coin was a- that that term was actually coined shortly after President Kennedy's assassination. And, and then that came into more common use, calling it Camelot, because they were referring to an Arthur like leader that had fallen and and his whole sort of house falling around him. Uh you know, Paul brought up so many good points this episode. I would like to just highlight that, you know, John Kennedy is not a good person to compare to King Arthur. He was, you know, he had a lot of good about him. And I, I think there are some things politically that, you know, it's important what he stood for, but he was far from a, a perfect man. Uh, and his Camelot, had it been real, which it never was, would not have been a perfect place. It's not the right thing to idolize. It's a lie that we tell ourselves because it is simple for us and it makes us feel good. And that is all that Tony really gets to accomplish in this episode. He tells himself a lie about his mother and about his father and his relationship with Fran because the lie is, you know, just simpler, easier, gentler than the truth. It makes him feel good. But you see it on his face at the end of the episode, and you see it on Tony B's face at the end of the episode that it is a myth. It is a myth. Uh, and that's important. Well said. I would only add that in the scene just before this junior dropped our pull quote, my life is only debt. Uh, thematically, this episode deals a lot with debt, which are things that we accrued over time, what we owe. And the stories that we tell ourselves about maybe things that don't have a market value, but are more sentimental, we might infuse with our self-justifications, our myths, in many cases, outright lies. And when that falls away, it's very sad that all that's left is what we owe and what we haven't put together, what we haven't accomplished. In Junior's case, that he never even had a chance to mourn the loss of a child, to have children, to mourn the loss of a loved one, to be so invested in another person that you die within days of their own passing. They're so lost and alone. So that really struck me in this episode too, that sadness of the loss of myth, because if you've built up so much around it as a foundation, then you're left in a fog of confusion and sadness and despair, I guess. So that really stayed with me. And I guess lastly, I would also note that this is another interesting episode that we've recorded, in spite of the fact that the episode that in Camelot is not universally loved, The Sopranos once again creates episodes that um, engender interesting discussions. Yeah. Yeah, this, this- Absolutely. This discussion about in Camelot was way more interesting than I was expecting for an episode that I listen, I kind of agree with Paul about like rankings, schmankings, who gives a fuck, but uh, also it's like, I, but I also agree that, you know, I would throw this on never out of never, if I'm just watching a random episode out of the blue and I, I just want to <laughs> send me to sleep, you know, it's going to be pine barrens. It's going to be a regular around the margins. It's going to be some, we haven't come across yet. It's going to be, I dream of Jeannie Cusimano and, 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 Isabella, like these classic episodes. Uh, this may not be that, but it is certainly an interesting examination. I think it was an hour worth spending in the Soprano universe and uh, an interesting chapter of an interesting and great season of television. 
So with that, I'm very excited for the next one as well. Uh, Marco Polo is the next episode in the season. And like you said, Paul, it is a sleeper favorite of mine. There's so many really dominant, awesome episodes in season five, but Marco Polo is one that uh, sticks with me. And it has a convention that I like about episodes of television, which is that it's centered around an event. And those episodes generally always work for me, uh, especially when it's an event that I myself would very much like to attend. Yes, uh, a long day's journey into the pool. <laughs> and so we're, we're going to get into it. I can't wait. Thank you guys for an awesome discussion. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mantini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we'll be back for episode eight, Marco Polo. Hey, Miss, you okay in there? I got myself a girl.